there are many accounts of imposters in our world. Imposters are people who pretend to be something that they're actually not. And nobody likes them because imposters are by nature deceptive. Their lips claim benefits that their lives can't validate. And we read some stories of imposters in the Bible. One of them in particular comes to mind from 1 Kings 3, deep in the Old Testament. It's the story of two women who are living together in the same house, and they both give birth to newborn sons about the same time. Tragically, as the story goes, one of the babies dies unintentionally when the mother lies on top of him. She's stricken with grief, as you can imagine. Longing for a baby, she concocts a plan to switch babies, place the dead baby next to the other woman and take her living son. That woman wakes up only to find her living son now seemingly dead. And the living baby is with the one who lost a child. And a dispute breaks out in that emotionally sensitive time as to whose baby is actually the living one. And both of them claim him. You know the story, King Solomon is brought in because of his wisdom to make a judgment as to who the real mother is. Finally, he asks for a sword to cut the baby in half to divide him between the two mothers. The mother of the dead baby, filled with grief and envy and all kinds of emotion, affirms the judgment. But the mother of the living baby responds in protest, no, don't kill the baby. Give the baby to the other woman. The Bible says that she was deeply moved out of love for her own son. And King Solomon, seeing the truth, knowing what he was doing, ordered that the baby be given to his actual mother. Her love resulted in action, even sacrifice for the well-being of another. She, of course, was the real mother. She was the real deal. She was no imposter. Today we're going to see what it means to be the real deal in life, in faith. Not a spiritual imposter, a pretender, a wannabe. And the evidences, the consequences are immense. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to James chapter 2. As we continue in our series, Faith Works, James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. I hope you brought a Bible. If you didn't, we're happy to give you one. Our hosts are in the aisles there. Just raise your hand. Uh, We'll loan this to you if you forgot your Bible at home. It's a gift to you if you don't own a Bible. We want you to have a Bible, the Word of God. James chapter 2. You can follow along in your worship program or one that they give to you. Or go to gracepolaris.org slash program to do so. We often do this at Grace. We stand in honor of the Word of God, and I'm going to ask you to do that here as well. As I read the second half of James chapter 2, you can follow along in your Bible. I'll be reading from the New International Version or on the screen. The Word of God says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. 
But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Thanks, you may have a seat. Thanks for honoring God's word in this way. As you've noticed for a number of weeks now, our sermon series video is entitled Faith Works, repeating that phrase. A number of commentators on the book of James use that as their title, and for good reason, because this passage may be the most theologically significant and is probably the most controversial in the entire letter from James. But it's also the, the climax of the letter. It's the logical extension of what he's been writing about all along, true religion that's acceptable to God. What it means to be hearers of the word and not just doers. The result of someone who has, in James 1.18, been given birth through the word of truth, a kind of first fruits of all God created. And so this second half of chapter 2 is vital. And in this section, James uses what was rhetorically called a diatribe back in his day. He's one side of the conversation. He's having a discussion with a hypothetical but very real debate partner, dialogue partner. Because James knows that there were people among his audience and in our audience today who represented that person. It's a person who thinks that it's possible to have saving faith without the expression of good works or deeds. And that's a question that clings to us all through this passage. Is faith without works possible? Now, in some of your Bibles, you'll come across the word deeds or actions. Uh, it, it's the word works, probably best translated so. One word that follows along in that whole passage. And here's the big idea, the main point of our sermon today. In fact, it's the main point of what James is writing in these chapters. Faith without works is dead and cannot save. Again and again, James makes that point with slightly different wording. It's not so much a linear argument with a pile of premises. Instead, it's like James is circling over top, like a helicopter shining the spotlight on the same situation. That most important of questions, can you have faith without works? And the resounding conclusion of this passage is no. Look at the evidence here. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such 
faith save them. Verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Verse 20, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Verse 24, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Not once, twice, five times, James repeats his main point. We're going to work through this passage looking at his claims. And I know that there are many of you familiar with the Bible who, who quickly want to object to this. James, yeah, but... Okay, James, but... And if James were talking to us, he'd say, wait a minute. Let me make my case. We realize that James is not the only author in Scripture, humanly speaking, not the only one who deals with faith and works. But we believe that this is God's word, that it's inspired from start to finish, that it's true and authoritative and consistent. And so we need to read our Bibles well and hear each part out. Reminds me that there are some important uh, principles as we seek to understand the Bible. Let me name several of them. One is that we ought to listen to the context. We ought to look at the surrounding verses and the chapter and the letter when we read the scriptures. We need to let the whole Bible speak. If we believe that God is speaking from start to finish here, we believe that he speaks consistently, don't we? We need to let scripture interpret scripture. We can utilize logic and philosophy and history, but all of them are trumped by the authority of scripture. And yet we're not the first people to journey through this passage. We have 2,000 years of history of people wrestling with not only what James says, but what the Bible says about this topic. And we'll find this. A living faith will authenticate itself in the production of works. There's no antagonism between faith and works. Works are an essential expression of faith. We can have head knowledge, we can have intellectual assent, we can have agreement in our heads, but a faith that does not result in action is a sham because faith works. First point in your outline, genuine faith acts with compassion when faced with practical needs. Verses 15 and 16, James begins with an illustration that his Jewish listeners, many of them believers, could relate to. Someone lacks the basic necessities in life. They have rags for clothes. They only have a few morsels for food. You and I live in a setting in world history where we can go days or weeks without coming across anyone in such a situation. But in much of the world, you can. I've seen such people, and so have you. I remember a summer I spent in inner city Philadelphia, but I especially remember times that I've been in Southeast Asia or in Central Africa, including in churches. People who have come into the gathering who have health and hygiene and hunger needs. And it's, it's the height of gladness when, when you see them accompanied by friends and family who are evidently caring for them. But it's the height of sadness when they come in all alone and left alone. Here the situation, the reality is clear, and so is the response. In ancient society, they said something like, go in peace, be warm and well-fed. 
If we lived in the South, we'd hear, God bless you. May some kind soul help you out. We could go to a secular setting. Good luck, buddy. Hope somebody can spare you a dollar. It's all the same thing. You have need, but I'm not going to inconvenience myself to meet it. I'm not going to sacrifice. I'm not going to care for you. I'm just going to throw out some soothing words that will make you feel better and not realize that I'm not doing a darn thing. I want the appearance of piety, but I don't want to practice it. It reminds me of a subtle but stinging rebuke of Jesus to people who thought of themselves as self-righteous before God. We know it as the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10. It reads in verse 25, On one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus' teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, What is written in the law? How do you read it? The man answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus replied, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You know the story. There was a man who was coming down the road, who was attacked, who was beaten, who was wounded. And three people passed him by. One of them was a priest who did nothing. And the next was a Levite who did Nothing. And the third was a Samaritan who did something. Not only something, but he stopped and he helped and he made sure that all of the needs of this poor wounded man were cared for. Jesus says, which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy. Jesus said, go and do likewise. These words confronted Jesus' hearers 2,000 years ago, but they should also confront and perhaps sting us 2,000 years later. What kind of people are we? What kind of people are we when we encounter people with need, especially people in the household of God, especially people in your spiritual family, especially people in this local church? How do you respond when you come across people in need? teaching of James is clear, living faith expresses itself in acts of compassion. Contrast here is between dead faith and living faith. And here are the words of an uncaring, professing believer who fails to act when he sees need in the life of someone else. And his faith is useless, James says, because faith works. Lip service faith is empty faith. Jesus said so, and so did his first followers. One of them was John. In his first letter, chapter 3, verse 17, he writes, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Or Jesus himself at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which has so many parallels with James' letter. Matthew 7, verse 16, by their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The answer, clearly no. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. 
A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. By their fruit, you will know or recognize them. Genuine faith acts with compassion when faced with practical needs. Second point, genuine faith manifests itself by observable works. Verse 18. Remember, this is a diatribe that James is using. He's speaking with this hypothetical but very real dialogue partner. And he says, in effect, something like this. You can't show me your faith because you do not have works. I, on the other hand, can show you my faith by my works. His opponent wants to claim that faith and works can exist without each other. It might be true that works can exist alone, but James argues that faith issues in works. Faith without works, without a changed life, is a dead faith. Now, to some... Maybe you, this idea that genuine faith by its nature inevitably results in good works it causes you some nervousness, maybe even objection. Because any mention of good deeds runs the risk, you say, of proclaiming some kind of works salvation. And as we see later in the Bible, works are not a prerequisite to salvation. Salvation cannot be earned but it can be evidenced. Indeed, it must be. Otherwise, it's not saving faith. Kevin DeYoung, in his excellent book from a number of years ago, The Hole in Our Holiness, says this. Stressing the necessity of personal holiness should not undermine in any way our confidence in justification by faith alone. Faith and good works are both necessary, but the one is the root and the other is the fruit. Write that down. The one is the root and the other is the fruit. Works are the inevitable outcome of genuine faith. We like to pit the two against each other, but they both matter. They are both essential. The question is, which is the foundation and what's the structure? What's the root and what's the fruit? No fruit, no tree, seems to be no root. Thinking of this man who, who evidences his faith by his works, Edmund Hebert writes, in everything he does, faith is the main ingredient. Just as a motor produces power, because an electrical current flows through it, so a Christian produces good deeds because true faith empowers him. Third point, genuine faith transcends right beliefs. Many, most of those to whom James was writing were Jewish in background, many of them believers. And they said they learned from a young age to, to believe and proclaim right things about God. One of them that they repeated often was the so-called Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. They were very different. They stood out from their pagan neighbors in this pro proclamation. 
Jewish followers of Jesus believe this as well. In fact, they believe that Jesus was the incarnation of God, that he revealed in the flesh God, Yahweh. But speaking to them, those who claimed faith in Christ, James turns their profession on its head. He says what you claim isn't enough because actually the demons do too. The demons believe in one God. The demons, as we see in the Gospels, believe that Jesus is the Christ. The demons believe in the afterlife. In terms of basic theology, if they would have taken a test, they'd have passed it. Yet they are lost and damned. Because assent isn't enough. James warns here that that orthodoxy and, and, and right doctrine isn't sufficient. Oh, it's important. In the same way that a solid foundation is important for a house, but you don't live in or on the foundation, you build a house on it. And you build a life on faith. And it's a faith that expresses the certainty, the object of itself. What you believe matters, and so does what you live out on its basis. Let's summarize this in in two ways. First, the negative side. Dead orthodoxy has absolutely no power to save. In fact, it may even hinder a person from coming to living faith. You may know someone like that. Correct doctrine, as Essential as it is, is no substitute for personal holiness. It can't substitute, and that should sober us. What a great number of people there are who have come to church on a regular basis, who were there for Sunday school and vacation Bible school, who went to a Christian school or took theology classes or listened to excellent preaching month or year after year, or maybe all of those things, but they've not done what it says. They're full of knowledge. They're puffed up, but not transformed looking like Jesus. Kent Hughes, pastor of the college church in Wheaton for many years, wrote, tragically, hell will have its share of people who are monotheistic, Trinitarian, Orthodox, and lost. On the positive side, we might say it like this. It's a good thing to possess accurate theology. But it's far better for accurate theology to possess us. Good doctrines meant to be kindling for a life of faith expressed in good works that changes our hearts, that changes our affections. And when it does, we shudder not out of fear like the demons, but out of delight as we see what God does in us. Otherwise, faith professed is useless. Genuine faith transcends right beliefs. Fourth, genuine faith takes risks because of trusting God. One of our core values here at Grace is what we call risk-taking faith. And that's because the very nature of faith or trust in Jesus Christ leads us to be willing to take risks in life. Risks that the world thinks are foolish. To take risks in terms of our priorities, in terms of our generosity with finances, in terms of our relational and sexual choices, in terms of our career callings, in in terms of what we say and our willingness to be scorned, in terms of our church involvement. 
We're willing to pursue things or to resist things, and the world thinks we're nuts. But we choose risk for God's sake rather than the approval of the world. That's always been true by those who have genuine faith proved by their works. What does that look like? Well, James gives us two examples, two exhibits of that. The first, Abraham. James takes us all the way back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 22, there where God tested Abraham. Abraham at that point was an old man. He was there with his young son, Isaac. Isaac was the child of promise. He was the key to God's plan. And against all logic, against all reason, God told Abraham to take Isaac up the mountain and sacrifice his only son. And Abraham obeyed every step of the way, despite his lack of understanding. So much so that he ended up raising a knife over his only promised son when God called out, stop, now I know who you are. A righteous God-fearer. Abraham wouldn't even withhold his promised son if God commanded it. Why? Because he had faith. He trusted God and he took risks to show it. Abraham was called a friend of God here. His actions fulfilled the scriptures. Quote, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's interesting that that quotation isn't taken from Genesis 22, the story of Abraham and Isaac, but rather Genesis chapter 15, when Abraham wasn't an old man, but in the prime of life. But he was a childless man. And he and his wife Sarah wondered, how would God prove his promise is true. Today's Mother's Day. A day like this causes many parents, especially mothers, to wonder the same thing. Maybe you want children, but you can't have them. Maybe you want a husband, but he's nowhere to be found. Maybe you have children, but not the obedient kind that you envisioned. Maybe you have many children, more than you bargained for, Maybe you have children who have wandered from you or wandered from the faith. And you say, God, if you're good, then how come I don't see that in my reality? Abraham and Sarah wondered that. But they didn't know the end of the story, so they trusted God. And so can we. And on the basis of that trust, in God's provision, God counted Abraham righteous in his sight. Theologians call this forensic justification, a big phrase there, that says that God counts someone righteous on the basis of their trust in him. This was true with Abraham. And in similar fashion, it can be true with us. That as we trust the provision of God in the person of Jesus Christ, who acted on our behalf, that God can look upon us as righteous people. Why? Because of what Christ has done on the cross, not what we have done for God. It is a, an act of God, not a process that we gain. 
Later in life, though, again and again, in fits and starts, Abraham demonstrates the fruit of that faith. Abraham's willing, in the end, to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. He believed earlier that God would provide a son, and he did. And 30-plus years later, Abraham believed that God could either spare Isaac or replace him. And God did. We read about Abraham, therefore, in the Hall of Faith in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He would embrace the promises, was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. James argues here that Abraham's faith, highlighted in Genesis 15, resulted in acts of obedience again and again in his life. That his faith was validated through the good works that he offered God. Abraham's faith is perfected, we might say. It's brought to maturity through his works. And our faith is unfinished without an expression of works. Our faith is consummated by our works. That's why James can say in verse 23... His faith and actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. His works didn't earn justification. They were the fruit, they were the outward evidence of his faith. Edmund Heber goes on to say, had there been no works, Abraham would not have been justified. But that would have been because the absence of works would have meant that he had no real faith. James isn't done. Abraham, of course, is a natural hero to those Jews. But the second woman, the second Rahab, wouldn't have been. For for Rahab, in contrast to Abraham, was a prostitute. Yet she had taken in God's spy sent by Joshua in that book as they went to the promised land. She realized that the one true God was the God Yahweh of the Israelites. And she chose to risk her life and to risk her family in order to help these people. And she gets airtime in the hall of faith as well. Hebrews 11, verse 31, By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Her faith worked. She acted upon what she believed. This is quite a duo here. This is quite a contrast here. Abraham was a patriarch. Rahab was a prostitute. Abraham was moral. Rahab was immoral. Abraham was the original Jew. Rahab was a Gentile woman. He was upwardly mobile. She lived in the gutter. But anyone is capable of acting on his or her faith because genuine faith works. James has made his argument here through the end of James chapter 2. Now we need to pull some key points together. Fifth and final point, genuine faith represents not the enemy of works, but their very wellspring, their very foundation. Perhaps the biggest challenge of all in reading James chapter 2 is the sense that somehow this seems to contradict other parts of the Bible. 
This despite the fact that James is Jesus' half-brother, that James has heard years of Jesus' teaching. Normally, we'd be inclined to give James the preference over other New Testament writers. But in reality, it's often the opposite, that there's a sense of tension that we feel, particularly between what James writes and what Paul, another New Testament author, writes. Let me put two verses up on the screen to show the tension. James chapter 2, verse 24, we've read it, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Romans 3.28 from Paul, a person is justified by faith and not by works of the law. It's a contradiction, right? There it is. Not so fast. Because as we look closer here, we see that James and Paul are not in opposition. Paul is speaking about this initial declaration of righteousness upon a sinner who trusts God. James is speaking to the verdict of innocence pronounced over a person at the end of life. In his commentary on James, New Testament scholar Doug Moose says this, if a sinner can get into relationship with God only by faith, that's Paul's message, the ultimate validation of that relationship takes into account the works that true faith must inevitably produce. That's James's message. Paul insists here that a person is declared righteous by faith alone. James insists that a person demonstrates that they're righteous by faith and works together. James isn't arguing that works must be added to faith. Instead, that genuine biblical faith will inevitably be characterized by works. And Paul says that too. The whole Bible says that. Genuine faith the real deal will be evident in observable works. You just can't suppress genuine faith. It will show its true colors. Paul, as he writes in the New Testament, writes against the kind of Jewish legalism that seemed to say that you could earn by your works the approval of God. James is saying that works are the inevitable outcome of those who have been justified by faith. Paul was rooting out works that excluded or destroyed saving faith. James was stimulating a sluggish faith that minimized the results of a saving faith in daily life. They both, Paul and James, view good works as the proof of faith, not the path of salvation. Let's say that again. Both Paul and James view the good works as the proof of faith, not as the path of salvation. It's important to know our context. James and Paul did. In our day, we must ask ourselves, are we living in a legalistic environment where people are thinking, if I just do enough good works, God will be satisfied with me? Or do we live in a libertarian environment where people say, I can live however I want, and God is just going to be fine with that. Are we talking to an unbeliever who says, I just can't fathom that salvation can be a free gift for me before I clean my life up? Are we talking to professing believers who say, it doesn't matter how I live. 
I've prayed a prayer. I've walked an aisle. I've raised a hand. I've been at every Christmas and Easter in my life. If it's the one, we need to listen especially to Paul. If it's the other, we need to especially listen to James. Paul's focus on faith and works is on before conversion. James's focus is on after conversion. Paul pushes back on the tradition promoting false works salvation. James is, is fighting against a light faith that minimizes the necessity of works after coming to Christ. Paul says works cannot bring us to Christ. James says after we come to Christ, those works are imperative. One of the most important lessons that I learned in understanding the Bible came from Dr. Dave Plaster, my predecessor here. And in seminary, he taught us again and again that you will find tensions in the Bible. And when you come across a tension, think of it like a taut rope, a taut string. Don't cut it. Let the tension remain. Divine, response, uh, divine sovereignty, human responsibility. The dignity of man, the depravity of man. Faith works. See, it's the order, it's the sequence that matters. James believes in justification by faith and a faith that produces then works. We don't work for our salvation. We work out our salvation. And Paul says the same thing. I want to quote a couple of verses that many of you are familiar with to hear what Paul, James' fellow follower of Jesus, says about these things. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Excuse me, 2, 8 to 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Amen? For we are God's workmanship, his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Or Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, Paul writes, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Salvation is by faith alone. We have to come to Jesus Christ with faith plus nothing. We have nothing to bring. But salvation is by a faith that is not alone. As Martin Luther said 500 years ago, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Genuine faith, the real deal, is accompanied by a life of evidence. James says, faith without works is dead, and it cannot save. But genuine faith will and will show. As the musicians come and we prepare to respond, I'm reminded of what the old pastor Warren Wearsby wrote long ago. Looking at James chapter 2, he saw three kinds of faith. He saw a dead faith, the kind that will never save because it doesn't express itself in any kind of works. 
He saw a demonic kind of faith because the demons themselves believe the right things, but it issues in no fruit. Rather than the dead faith or the demonic faith, Wiersbe said we ought to have a dynamic faith, the kind that because it's deeply rooted in us, expresses itself like a spring over and over again in the good works that God has prepared for us. If you truly know Jesus, it will prove itself over and over and over again. 